This episode of MS Understood is brought to you by Monday Distillery. Enjoy their delicious, sugar-free, non-alcoholic drinks and have a great night with your friends without getting boozy. Hi, I'm Claire Riley and welcome to MS Understood. I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis in April 2017. At the time, all I wanted to do was get on with my life, put my head in the sand and privately listen to real people's stories about living with this unpredictable disease. I was deep in denial, terrified about the unknown ahead, and I felt really alone. So, there it is. MS Understood, conversations with real people from all walks of life who live with MS. Before we get started, I'd like to acknowledge that this episode of MS Understood was recorded across multiple lands. I recognise and acknowledge that all of Australia is Aboriginal land, and I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. I spent two years, you know, unemployed and underemployed and working for free because career is really important to me. It always has been um, and, and I suspect it always will be very important to me. One of the things that I feared the most when I received my MS diagnosis was this idea that I wouldn't be able to work or no one would want to work with me. Today on the MS Understood podcast, we chat with interviewer, teacher, writer and advocate Astrid Edwards. We talk about her chapter in the newly published Growing Up Disabled in Australia. She shares about trusting yourself when knowing something isn't right with your body. She offers suggestions on how you can make studying more comfortable for students living with chronic illnesses. Astrid talks about her incredible list of MS-related symptoms and how she refuses to feel shame in relation to her MS. We had such a full chat and covered so many topics in this episode. I'm absolutely sure there'll be something for everyone. I hope you enjoy. Hi, Astrid. Thank you so much for joining us on the MS Understood podcast today. How are you going? I'm doing well today and I'm very happy to be here. Oh, thank you so much. I need to um, put a thank you out to my cousin, Clarice, who suggested the minute I put out that I was going to be starting this podcast, she sent me a link to one of your episodes on um, your podcast, which was called Fortitude, and I will link it in the show notes, and I loved it. And I think I um, was too nervous to reach out to you straight away, but I got there eventually. <laughs> Thank you very much for listening. Um, I do a podcast with Jamila Rizvi called Anonymous Was a Woman, and we That's talk right. about books, and that episode, Fortitude, uh, that was a good one. You know, yeah. uh, we theme episodes and 2020 was a year we all all needed a bit of fortitude, I have to say. Yeah, and you so I got some great books in that episode, which I'm actually going to come back to. Um, but we, I always start every episode with um, the guest diagnosis story. So if you could share that with us, that'd be great. My diagnosis story, well, I about seven years ago I was feeling ill. And I was at an age in life when I was working really hard. I was a consultant. I would go to work at about seven o'clock. I would finish work at about six o'clock. And then I would go out, you know, for dinner or drinking. I, I had long days out and I was feeling tired and overwhelmed and probably a bit depressed and all sorts of strange feelings in my body, numbness, tingling, burning, all sorts of strange things that I'd never felt before. And I kept going to the GP, you know, every month I'd go to the GP and say, hey, I'm not feeling very good, you know, maybe there's something wrong. And every month I'd be, it would be inferred that 
I was working too hard and it was my own fault that I was depressed and it was my own fault that I didn't have a good enough exercise regime and wasn't eating well enough and it was my own fault and maybe it was all in my head. So, you know, that kind of went around for quite a while. And then one day towards the end of that year, I woke up quite violently. And when I mean, when I say violently, I mean, I was asleep and suddenly my body shot up. So suddenly I was in a seated position and it felt like my feet were on fire. So essentially my body had obviously, I don't know, given me some kind of emergency response and woken me up because something had gone wrong. Um, I canceled my plans for that day. It was a Sunday. Um, and slowly that feeling went from the soles of my feet over the course of the next eight days, all the way up to my breasts. Um, and it was, uh, it was numb but it was also tingling and burning. And it sounds like those feelings can't go together, but so many people with MS have obviously experienced those, those things together. I went to the GP, the GP took one look at me and thought, oh my God, this is beyond, this is above my pay grade and wrote me a letter and told me to walk around the corner to the nearest emergency department. I went into the emergency. It was a shocking experience because MS should not be treated in the emergency department. Um, but through that emergency uh, fiasco where I was overnight, I had an MRI and then I got the results a little bit, you know, a week later. Uh, and it was MS because I have lesions on my brain. Um, I tell that story that way because I knew I was ill and it was apparent that I was experiencing my first symptoms of MS for almost a year before something went so wrong that it was apparent that there was an immediate and present problem. And I think while all of our diagnoses stories are different, just as all of our first symptoms are different, it's unpleasant to know that you are probably ill or that you suspect that you are ill and people not believe you or diminish your symptoms because with MS, they can be kind of odd sometimes, right? Oh, absolutely. And I think I heard you in a podcast, um, Guilty Feminist, sorry, my words are escaping me. And you and Jimila were both speaking about, you particularly in this case about MS, uh, around the fact that because so many, or the percentage of women getting diagnosed with MS, a lot of it either we brush aside because that's what women do and we get on and we look on, we look after everyone else, or it gets diagnosed, put down to hysteria, or like you said, you're not looking after yourself properly, or you're not exercising right, you're eating wrong. And, um, you know, the fact that, it, it, and you mentioned in that podcast, that 12 months is a relative, relatively quick diagnosis time. And I've spoken to people who had their first symptoms 10 years before. Um, and it's just... I think like, like you've said, is that you really, people really need to um, trust themselves and push for when they, they know that something's not right with their own body. It's really true. And it's hard to do because when you know there's something not right with your own body, sometimes that can be really quite um, uh, scary or you need support or you know, it's a bit confronting when your body is no longer working the way you, you once thought it would. And so that's the time when you kind of need the health system to be there for you, as opposed to having to wage a battle with the health system to believe you. There is a fantastic book written by an Australian journalist, Gabrielle Jackson, and the book is called Pain and Prejudice. It's not a book about MS, but it is a book about women's experiences 
with health and contemporary medicine and with the Australian health system. And I found reading that book really quite helpful to me. Um, it made me, doesn't tell me anything about MS, but it tells me about being a female in the Australian health system and how I shouldn't feel bad about picking fights with doctors sometimes if I think they're not listening to me or if I think that they're dismissing me. Oh, wow. I haven't heard of that. And I'll pop a link to it in the show notes. Another couple of books you mentioned in that in the Fortitude episode were um, Show Me Where It Hurts, um, which I have since read and loved and you're showing me now. It's amazing. And I think, again, it's not about MS, but it is really good. For me, it was the first few chapters or the first few pages even were so um were were just it was my experience in that in those pages and I just I wanted I mean a lot of the book I didn't necessarily relate to but those first few pages were I just wanted everyone I knew to read it yeah it's a great book so show me where it hurts is Kylie Maslin's experience of uh, endometriosis and uh bipolar 2 disorder now I don't have either of those disorders but I felt quite seen in that book in the sense that some of her experiences with doctors, some of her experiences with employers, some of her experiences with friends and family are similar experiences to what I've had. And, you know, when I first got diagnosed with MS, I, I went online and, you know, Googled and bought every book about MS that I could find. And they were really important to me and remain important to me. Um, but I also really like reading the experiences of people without MS, but with significant conditions, because I find I learn a lot from them as well because of their experience in the system and the, the tips and tricks they've learned to, you know, be a person with chronic illness and still have their own agency and choices in life. Yeah. The, um, I love listening to your and Jamila's recommendations because I think you've both got such incredible health stories and you, I really relate to, and it's the same, anyone with chronic illness relates, is able to relate in some way to those stories. Um, can you share with us though, how do your symptoms show up now? So you were diagnosed, it took about a year for the diagnosis. How long ago was that? Did you say so? So uh, that was more than seven years ago now. Yeah. Um, I am. I just turned forty. So congratulations! Uh, <laughs> Happy birthday! Outed myself. Um. So all of my original symptoms are what I experience most commonly. But over the years, uh, and I have been on several MS therapies and do take MS therapy now. Um. My my list of symptoms has expanded. I, a few years ago, I did write it down, and in my uh scrawly bad handwriting I have three pages of symptoms so you know this this could go on for a while but I'll give you the highlights um in general my issues are sensory cognitive and kind of uh balance oriented uh for want of a better word um I do get a lot of cog fog and slow thinking by cog fog I mean cognitive dysfunction and uh Twice I have been um, unable to communicate, once because I physically had locked jaw and was actually unable to communicate in addition to, you know, having cog fog, um, but also once when I lost cognitive function for 48 hours, which was terrifying um, and 
deeply disturbing, I have to say. Um, they are the extreme examples of cognitive dysfunction that I've had, but, you know, I do have um, hours or days or weeks of not being at my best. Uh, and that is a problem because I love my career and I love working and I find that the most distressing symptom. Um, uh, I have balance issues. I have coordination issues. I am the, the, the clumsiest person. Um, I break a lot of glasses. Um, I regularly just buy new sets of glasses because I break them so constantly. Um, I run into things on the left-hand side, you know, um, sometimes I find elevators or escalators difficult to get the timing right. But then other days I can do them fine in high heels. So it's all very random. Um, I get a lot of neuropathic pain um, and also other kind of odd sensations like burning, tingling, numbness. Um, and that, I guess, you know, fatigue. I mean, just pure fatigue, which everybody with MS and I think everybody with chronic illness knows intimately. Um, so I guess they're my high level ones, but you know, I've had all sorts of random things. I mean, you know, I've broken a toe cause I couldn't, uh, cause I got dropped foot one day, you know, accidentally. I, oh God, list, I could just go on. Coming up after the break, Astrid shares one of the things she feared most after her diagnosis was that her career would be affected and talks about having tricky conversations with your loved ones. But first, a word from today's sponsor. When I was first diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, I felt like all my power and control had been taken away. Monday Distillery gave me back a little bit of that control without making me feel like I was missing out. I love a GNT, but I hate the increased trips to the toilet, heightened lack of bladder control, and feeling more unsteady on my feet than my normal unsteadiness. Now with Monday Distillery, I can have my GNT and drink it too without any additional wobbles, allowing me to feel like I'm taking back a bit of control over my uncontrollable disease. Find Monday Distillery in Stockus on their website and cheers to having a drink with my friends with high spirits and a clear mind. You, um... Just speaking of the cogfog, because I want to ask you about work, in your chapter in Growing Up Disabled, which has just been released, um, you wrote, I once had an identity that was trusted in the workplace. After my diagnosis, I spent two years unemployed, underemployed and working for free because no one wanted to employ such a sick leave risk. So can you tell us what you were doing for work, how you decided to come out, kind of what that looked like in between and what you're doing now because I believe you're doing quite a lot now and I then want to ask about management of your fatigue and those sort of symptoms. So um, as I alluded to before I was a consultant I worked long hours I loved it I kind of specialized in uh, social policy and, and climate and environmental policy and it was a career that I thought I would have for decades. I this all happened at a time when the industry itself that I was working in was quite difficult. The politics of Australia had changed. Tony Abbott had repealed the legislation that, uh, you know, underpinned the climate uh, regulation in Australia. So the, the industry itself was in a bit of a traumatic spot. And I was personally and physically, um, obviously, you know, with MS diagnosis, I was all over the shop for quite a while. Um, I did tell my employer about two months after I was diagnosed, the employer did all the right things to my face, but it was very clear internally that I was moved off anything decent, any projects that I would want to work on, anything that would involve career progression. And over the course of that first year, um, I went from full-time down to, I think it was three days a week. And then the company got sold and everybody else panicked. I'm like, I'm out of here. I quit. 
That, um, um, that so, time difference, sorry, was that your choice or was that work's choice? Um, I went down, it was my choice to go part-time. It yes. was also made clear to me that I wasn't welcome full-time. Um, and I was just very ill this, that year as well. I don't think I was, um, I think I was, I think I was very depressed the first year as I came to terms with, uh, trying to understand the new reality of my body and deal with the emotional fallout that I felt after my diagnosis and that I felt as I was physically so ill. My first year with MS was consistently the illest I have ever been. I have had worse, um, uh, weeks since then but as a consistent year it was the worst year that I have experienced and that was the year that I wasn't on any therapy um uh and I you know I now take MS therapy and I do feel better in general um although I still experience MS relapses in terms of what I do now I spent two years, you know, unemployed and underemployed and working for free because career is really important to me. It always has been, um, and, and I suspect it always will be very important to me. One of the things that I feared the most when I received my MS diagnosis was this idea that I wouldn't be able to work or no one would want to work with me. And not only did I leave my job, I also decided to change industries and I came to the arts and education industry, uh, which is, you know, part of my original training. But more importantly, it is the thing that I love. And it was hard. It took years for anybody to, I mean, changing industries is hard. And I want to recognize that. And that has nothing to do with MS. But it also was difficult because I had been public about my MS diagnosis. If anybody Googled me, they could see it. And so there were always questions of, well, you know, she probably can't do the job. We'll like take her free labor on boards, but we won't let her work for the organization um, because God forbid, you know, she might take sick leave. Um, it took several years to get a contract. I have since, you know, I am now employed by RMIT. I have a contract. I, um, you know, have a, as much as anybody in Australia's higher education sector, I have a secure job um, at a major institution and I thank RMIT for that. Um, I work damn hard for RMIT as well, but I do thank the organisation for not perceiving me in a way that other employers uh, did. Wow. Um, there's so many things I want to come back to there, but you work um, as a teacher now in um, at RMIT. Something that I know I was... Like I said, my cousin um, sent me your podcast, but Carly Finlay actually suggested I reach out to you um, when I started studying. And not this question, I suppose, doesn't just relate to MS, but I wanted to find, and I couldn't at the time, some tips or some suggestions on making studying more comfortable, more accessible. Do you have any um, suggestions of things that people can do to their space physically, but also, um, I don't know, in ways that, yeah, we can make studying more accessible on our own, like things that we can do. So we are recording this in 2021 and, you know, I am currently an online teacher. I used to teach face-to-face -face and for social distancing, uh, you know, rules and realities these days, I'm currently teaching online. And it's a very different experience for both the student and, and the teacher. I think that your physical space is incredibly important. 
I think that online learning is draining in a different way than physical learning. Obviously, there's no commute and there are definite benefits in that way. You know, there are no stairs, there's no stuffy classrooms, you know, you can choose your environment, but at the same time, it is mentally exhausting. It, it hurts the eyes to stare at a Zoom screen or whatnot all day. So I do recommend more breaks than you would take if you were studying um, in person or without a screen. I also think that I think that we're all probably going to have a lot of experiences online going forward more than we ever thought. And I do think it is worth, um, you know, investing in a really comfortable chair or, you know, a really comfortable desk that's the right height for you personally. Um, or, you know, rearrange, if you don't buy anything, rearrange your space with stacks of books and different chairs from a different room or whatnot to physically set you up well, because otherwise you won't concentrate and you won't learn anything, right? Like. <laughs> There's that. Um, I also, and I think other teachers might disagree with me, but as a person with chronic illness, I highly recommend studying in bed. You know, if your body is hurting or feeling discomfort, but your mind is active, do what you need for your body, but look after your mind as well. And I do recommend attending class in bed. Um, please be dressed, you know, clean T-shirt. That's okay. Um, but, you know. Turn the camera off. I have students who turn their camera on and they're in bed and I am okay with that because that means they are up and engaged and what more can you ask of a student? So I, I recommend moving around because that helps moving around where you study uh, and that can be bed, it can be the couch, it can be your desk, it can be the kitchen table. Just make sure that you are sitting in a way that isn't going to hurt your back or, you know, make you hate what you're doing. Yeah, great. I had never actually... I'd always not studied in bed because of that whole like, oh, you shouldn't, you've got to do it, but that's it. I'm going to read my textbook in bed from now on. I work from bed. <laughs> oh, yes. Do you show up to your Zoom calls from bed? Look, in the depths of 2020 Melbourne lockdown, I admit that I did, but in general, I try not to. Yes, fair enough. Um, when on Anonymous Source of Women, so the podcast you do, you host with Jamila Rizvi, you talked about developing your fortitude to having conversations around changing quality of your life with your partner, your family, um, and having those tough conversations about being sick. That's terrifying or can be terrifying for you, for your family. Sometimes people just don't want to hear it. Can you talk about how you got there and... Um, yeah, your, your um, experience of having those conversations. You're right. It, uh, I had to get there. You know, it, it just, I didn't wake up one day and know how to do it. I didn't wake up one day realising that it would be good for me and ultimately good for my friends and family to have those conversations because they are terrifying. I agree with you completely. I do now feel that I have better relationships with my partner with my family and with my friends because I have had those conversations so I am I think that one of the most significant contributors to my quality of life is the fact that I've had some hard conversations with the people that I love and the people that are around me that said you know don't have all your hard conversations in one day space them out you know just have one or two and see how they go maybe have the ones that you think will be easier first and slowly build up 
the kind of people who you feel you have been honest with. And I think for me, there were two ways it helped. These conversations helped. One was I got stuff off my chest. I explained things that are hard to explain. I mean, you know, we all know how hard it is to explain MS. Oh, I can do something today, but I can't do it tomorrow. And I said, I'd do this, but now I can't, but I'll look, I look healthy again the next day. You know, it's a, it's a strange thing to communicate, but also I had begun to feel like I was lying to the people around me or that I was hiding things from the people around me. And I, that I couldn't, I found that very difficult to deal with. And I found that so difficult to deal with that eventually the hard conversations looked an easier option. I think there's something too about, um, I said to a friend yesterday, we went for a kayak, but before I went for a kayak, I quickly just rode to the supermarket on my electric bike and got a couple of things. And I said, before I even got on the bike, I was exhausted because I had to get a mask out of one car, a grocery bag out of another car to get the bike out of the shed. I had to get on and off the bike multiple times. And she's like, I, I never realized that that is like, that's the, the riding the bike's fine. I'm sitting still and doing whatever, but it's the actual getting to riding the bike. That's the hard part. Um, and I know that you've said that describing how it feels, like you just said, you can't describe to someone how it feels who doesn't have it because one minute it's fine or you feel okay or you don't feel tired and the next minute it's completely different um and it's almost um that and the shame around not being able to do things or not being able to go out or even just being shame feeling shame about feeling pain there's so many of those things that wrap up into. So I refuse to feel shame about not being able to do things. And that has taken me uh, many years to get to. Again, I didn't just wake up and, and, and decide that I was never going to feel shame in relation to my MS again. But now that I've had those conversations with the people that I care about and the people that need to know, um, if they forget or have an expectation of me that I can't do something or I can do something. I, um, I call them out on it in a really lovely, friendly, hopefully joking way, but I refuse to feel guilty and I refuse to feel shame. I'll give you an example. Uh, I was one of the happy Victorians that got stuck in New South Wales. So I just spent an awfully long time uh, because of border closures with my mum and dad. I love my mum and dad. They're very, very supportive and have always been very supportive of me, including after I was diagnosed with MS. Occasionally my dad forgets that it's not a great idea for me to go walking in, you know, 30 degree Sydney heat. I will probably faint on him because I have heat intolerance. And, you know, as he kept asking me to go for a walk, I just said, hey, dad, look, you know, neurological disease. It's kind of insulting that you keep asking me, please stop. And he's like, oh, oh, yeah, right. Sorry, forgot. Good. Good to know. Thank you. Um, and, you know, we wouldn't be able to have that kind of slightly awkward, but also totally fine um, little reminder if we hadn't had the hard conversations first. So I refused to feel bad that I couldn't go for a walk with my dad in, you know, 30 degree plus heat. That's okay. I have MS and it's okay for him to realize that he shouldn't have probably asked me because he totally knows that I can't do that, but he did forget. And that's okay because it was coming from a really lovely place. He wanted to go for a walk with me, right? So I have to show a bit of compassion, but also I can remind him that uh, he needs to 
remember. I think that's so difficult too. Like we look generally look fine, um, but I'm, you know, sitting here in pain and for even, you know, my husband who is again amazing and supportive, there's nothing that reminds them, our loved ones, when they look at us that there's anything wrong. So true. Um, I had a question and we did speak about discrimination earlier and I wanted to find out a bit about you're very vocal about having MS. You talk about it on podcasts, on your Instagram. It's, you know, like you said, we can Google it and find out. Um, that's kind of terrifying and a lot of people do stay quiet because of their um, diagnosis, because of their discrimination that they're possibly going to get. How did you decide to share it so publicly? It took me a while. I, you know, told close friends and family and after a few months, uh, two months, I told my, some people at work, including my boss, I did, I've always loved writing and reading and kind of felt compelled to, I felt pulled in that direction. Uh, and so I did start a blog and I started it anonymously. I had a pseudonym called Lady with MS because I wanted to talk about it. I wanted to explore it through words and stories but I was also so terrified of putting my name against it. So I kind of did a trial run through Lady with MS and Lady with MS got, you know, um, it went quite well. And I felt like I understood myself a bit more in dialogue with people who I didn't know, but also had chronic conditions, chronic illnesses, multiple sclerosis. And eventually, you know, I just kind of, it, it just became too much of a, secret and also I'm not very good at lying um I fundamentally just can't be bothered it takes up so, so much energy um and so after that and that was about a year after I started Lady with MS I started slowly identifying my my own name you know Astrid Edwards with Lady with MS and over time I stopped Lady with MS and just went with my own name but it was very much a process and I was terrified to start with sometimes people ask me should they be public about their MS and my answer is always only after you've thought about it for a long time. It's not something that you should just get up tomorrow and do. Um, I am very glad that I am public about it. I feel mentally stronger for not having to hide it. But that is just my own personal response and it might not be the same for everyone. Um, there are legal protections in Australia. There is no need to disclose it to an employer. Um, you know, like get advice and take your time and it can be really liberating but also I would never tell anyone to do it you can't take it back either can't take it back once you've said it publicly in any way you can't take it back so yeah it was a long process for me to decide to share it um another quote from your book your chapter sorry in growing up disabled um it says this, that message took years and more neuropathic pain and public embarrassment than I expected to sink in. But eventually the penny dropped. I have a disability. I think that's really, um, I thought felt it really profound for me. It took, I was quite quick once I kind of came to terms with everything to get a disabled parking permit. I used mobility aids, but I still find it really difficult to own that label. Um, how did you 
come to terms with it? Decide that that's how you're, you know, you're, you're happy to be labelled as disabled? Yeah, again, it's been a process and also one that continues to be a process. You know, I don't know everything about my own MS right now. It's it, I can't get rid of it. Like, it's going to change. And I will continue to learn about it and about how I feel about it, um, you know, as I go along. So I think it's only been maybe three years now that I've, felt comfortable you know using the word disability in a sentence with myself and multiple sclerosis I felt very wary and uncertain at the beginning of that um as I say in growing up disabled in Australia I have always felt welcomed in the MS community you know I've been involved in MS Australia you know I love people with MS because you're my people, right? Like, <laughs> none of us chose to be in this community, but I have very much felt welcomed and supported by people with MS and the MS organizations. But I have not felt that way about the broader disability community. And so I was really scared to say, hey, I, you know, have a disability, or sometimes I use the word plural. I, I, I don't know if I have a disability or if I have disabilities because I have so many different symptoms that they're kind of different. Um, so I'm still learning. Um, but in the same way that I became confident talking about MS in public, I am now confident talking about the fact that my MS means that I have uh, developed disability or disabilities um, over time. And those disabilities are inconsistent. You know, some days I am okay, some days I'm very much not okay. And it's, it's still a work in progress. I'm sorry, that was a very long answer because I'm still coming to terms with this myself. No, and I think that's part of, I hadn't really thought about it, but part of what makes it so difficult to own the label of disability is that our disability is so inconsistent. It's like, how can we possibly claim to have a disability when one day we can walk and the next day we can't? Or one day we don't have cog fog and the next day we can't string a sentence together. Like how can we possibly feel ownership of a label if we don't have a one thing that happens all the time? It's not consistent. That was very much my motivation for submitting to Carly Finlay's Growing Up Disabled in Australia anthology. I, I love that series, right? It's been a whole series growing up queer, growing up Aboriginal, growing up African, um, growing up Asian in Australia. And the disability community is one of the many communities in Australia that is often not heard, is often misunderstood, is often marginalised. And I, despite the fact that I don't know everything about my own disability or disabilities, I didn't want people with chronic illness and people with invisible illness or people with illnesses that are inconsistent, sometimes visible, sometimes invisible, to not be represented in the anthology. So I'm kind of the, hey, I'm different, but I want to be here and I don't know what you all think of me, but chronic illness and MS and invisible illnesses count too. Mm, yeah. Can you tell me what the best thing to have happened because of your MS is? I have a better career now. <laughs> I yes. really do. And that took a while. So it's not like, you know, something fantastic just happened one day. But 
I made a promise to, when I was so ill in that first year, I made a promise to myself that anything I could get out of bed for, anything that I would go and, you know, spend days or hours for someone else working for, you know, I would, everybody listen to that sentence again. That is as an example of cog fog in motion. Goodness knows how <laughs> those, those words came out. But I made the decision that anything I did, I would have to really, really enjoy and preferably love. And so when I say I have a better career now, I work in the arts and education. I am a bibliophile. I spend most of my days reading for work. And that is what makes me happy. And so I don't think I would have had the courage to change my career. I certainly wouldn't have had the courage to leave that job um, if I hadn't been reminded that there were other things in life. And unfortunately for me, MS was the thing that reminded me there are other things in life. But I do think that my career is better now and I wouldn't have made the change otherwise. And so often the case is it's that real wake-up call for people. And, I mean, it sucks that that's a wake-up call, but isn't it nice to have had one? It really is. Yeah. The last question I love to ask everyone, and it's a tricky one for some people, is what is something you tell people to make MS more understood? Ooh, that's a hard question. It is. It is. I say I know I don't look ill, but sometimes I actually am. And please don't be surprised when one day I can do something or I look happy about doing something or I'm fully engaged in doing something and the other days I just ask for a chair and sit in the corner. Uh, because that will happen and I'm giving you advance notice that that will happen sometimes. So I guess I kind of like uh, jokingly warning people in advance that some days don't be surprised if I have no energy or physically am not really moving very far. Yeah, and I think that's the case for I'd be surprised if there isn't someone with MS who that relates to in some way. Yeah. And like heads up to start with. Yeah, just be like, hey, thanks for the invite. I keep one, I want the invites, but I might not always be able to make it. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you, Astrid, for spending some time with us today. Thank you so much. I really, really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of MS Understood. I hope you enjoyed this chat as much as I did. We talked about a bunch of different books in this episode and they're all linked in the show notes so you can access on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. You can find Astrid on Instagram at underscore Astrid Edwards underscore. And don't forget to check out Growing Up Disabled in Australia. Again, you can find the link to that in the show notes. You can find me on Instagram at Claire.Riley or at MS Understood Podcast. The best thing you can do to support this podcast is click follow on Spotify, subscribe on your other podcast listening platforms and leave a review. It really helps other people to find the podcast. Thanks again for listening and please share this episode with someone you think it might help.